individual family time, this whole church family and the corporate prayer has been praying for you. And you've been gone for months, brother. You've gone through a lot. He's gone through uh, chemo and stem cell. And he's been in Phoenix for several months. And the Lord has brought him and his family back. And we praise God for that, don't we? We've been praying for this family. The Lord hears us and the Lord is good. You know, we're singing that song earlier, The Goodness of Jesus. And I just am overwhelmed when I think about the goodness of Jesus. You know, many times I want to crawl into the field position and just cry because Jesus is so good to us. Christ is so good to us. Every day of our lives is a gift from the Lord. And many times we don't think about that, the goodness of Jesus. But I'm grateful to God that you and your family are here. and We praise God for you. So we are in Luke chapter 4. Uh, two weeks ago, I preached on Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 37. It was entitled, The Holy One of God. This is part two of the Holy One of God. And the main point that I was preaching two weeks ago is that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has all power and authority to deliver from sin. I hope we believe that, that Jesus has all power and authority to deliver his people from sin. And we see the truth of that, or we saw the truth of that, and how Jesus taught with authority in the synagogue. He exercised a demon out of a man. Can you imagine? There's a Jewish service happening, and this service is disrupted and interrupted by a man with a demon. And now there's this confrontation, this spiritual battle. And Jesus is not worried. He's not concerned. He's not stressed out. He says, be silent and come out of this man. And the demon comes out. And we praise God for that. So we see Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all power. He has the authority and power to punish and torment demons and evil spirits. Jesus has that power. Jesus has the power and authority to stop demons from speaking. When demons want to go from, a, from one location to a next, the demons have to ask Jesus for permission. For example, the herd of swine in Matthew chapter 8. And even though all of this is true, and when I preached that message two weeks ago, I knew that there would be implications to that sermon. I knew that there would be theological implications that would need to be discussed in today's sermon, two weeks later. We Christians must have a biblical and balanced perspective as it relates to the spiritual world. There is a spiritual world. For those of us who would deny it altogether that Spirits don't exist. You have not read your Bible correctly. And so we must, as Christians, have a biblical and balanced perspective on this topic. In other words, I've said it many times from this pulpit that when the Bible speaks, we speak. And when the Bible is silent, we're silent. There's no reason to conjure up ideas. And so today's sermon is really part two of the sermon I preached two weeks ago. I'm not going to go over the entirety of that first sermon. You can listen to that online. But for us as a gospel-centered church, what does that mean to us? When 
there is the reality of a spiritual world, that there are demons, that there is a devil. And parents, I understand I'm putting you in a weird position today, but this is a topic that needs to be discussed. We can no longer stick our head in the sand and pretend that things don't exist. We need to address this topic in a biblical fashion, in a balanced way. And the main point that I want to get across today is Christians rely on the Word of God. There's one word that I forgot there. Christians must rely on the Word of God. You can't rely on your feelings. You can't rely on Hollywood. You can't rely on your uh, opinions. We must rely on the Word of God. And there's three questions. You'll see this in your bulletin that I want to address today because we need to address this. Number one, question number one, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Number two, is God truly in control over Satan and demons? And question number three, when we are tempted to sin or spiritually attacked, what does God require of us? So my hope is to address those three questions in the time that I have before us. So question number one, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Before I address that question, we need to talk about Satan, known as the adversary, known as the devil. When we think about Satan, what comes to mind? What, what type of ideas come to mind? What visions come to mind? I would argue that most Christians, well-meaning Christians, have the wrong view of the devil. They think of the devil as a person with a long pointy nose, pointy ears, a long tail, a red suit, and a three-pronged trident or spear. And this person runs around hop, hopping around like a little goblin. And so that's, we're laughing, right? But that's how we look at the devil. Many times when it comes to Halloween next month, you know, many people are going to wear those type of outfits, which I don't understand. But in reality, in medieval times, the medieval church realized that the devil and demons were real. The medieval church understood that there was a spiritual world. The medieval church understood that they were being attacked for preaching the truth. The medieval church actually believed that the counterattack was to attack the devil by attacking his pride. And the way that you attack the devil's pride is that you create pictures with a long nose in a red suit in a pitchfork. And you do one of these, right? You make fun of the devil. That's how you fight the devil. That's how you defend yourself from his attacks. But is the picture or that picture of Satan, which we see on Halloween, primarily biblical? No, it's not. Because the Bible is very clear that the devil is described as the angel of light. The angel of light, that he has the ability to disguise himself as someone who is a good creature. That's what it means to be an angel of light, a good creature. The Bible, all describes, the Bible also describes the devil as subtle. Subtle. Right? The devil doesn't need to get you to do something evil, per se, or sinful. As Christians, we read the Bible, we know what is the best thing we need to do, which is obey the word of God. But if the devil can get you to do not the best thing, but a good thing, that's one step below that, 
then he already has you where he wants you. That's a subtle thing. But it's not the thing that glorifies God. But you're doing a good thing. Good job. Keep it up. The devil is also known as beguiling, crafty. He speaks well. He's eloquent. He's intelligent. Actually, his appearance is stunning. It's actually the opposite of the Halloween version that we think about all the time. Satan is the principal supernatural evil being. So there's a spiritual world. It's an evil world. And out of all these demons, the devil is the principal, the primary evil spiritual being. And so then we have below that, we have demons. Demons are evil, supernatural beings. They are minions of the devil. They serve their master, the devil. And so the Bible's clear that demons have superior knowledge. Didn't we read that in Luke chapter 4 a couple weeks ago? When the demon was now at odds and confrontation face-to-face with Jesus, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You're the Holy One of who? God. Jesus never introduced himself to the demon. But yet that demon has supernatural or superior knowledge. Demons have strength. If you understand in the Gospels, the Gadarene or Gerasene demoniac, the people were afraid, the people of that community were afraid because this demon-possessed man had strength that was supernatural. They also have the ability to foretell the future. Those are demons. The job description of Satan and demons is to oppose God's work, God's kingdom, God's ministry, God's will. The work of the devil and the demons is to oppose anyone who's allied or allied with God. That's you and me, Christians. So the devil and demons are real. They oppose God and his will and his work in the world. They oppose Christians in the world. Anytime that there's a gospel-centered church in the world that preaches the truth, thus saith the Lord that Christ Jesus lived and died for sinners, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised again. Believe upon him and be saved. When that gospel message is proclaimed in a gospel-centered church, there's a spiritual battle that's happening. I hope you understand that. That's what the devil and the demons are trying to stop at all times, is the message of hope. The message of hope that saved you and me from the condemnation, the wrath of God. So, now that we have a good idea of Satan and demons, we can address this first question. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Well, what is a Christian? A Christian is a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, a person who has committed their life to Jesus Christ. What's a demon? I just mentioned an evil supernatural being that works for their master, the devil, or Satan. So then when we look at the word possession in this question, possession, the problem with this word possession is that it implies ownership. It implies property. That a true born-again Christian 
purchased by the blood of Jesus is actually the property and ownership of a demon or the devil. There's a problem with this English word possession. Why? Because even though we see it in our English Bibles, there's a variety of English Bibles that we use, right? The problem is this English word possession is not in the original language. In the original language, it's daimonizomai, which simply means that this person has a demon. It does not mean that this person is the property of the demon. There's a difference there. That the person has a demon, they're not owned by the demon. But sadly, this word possessed is many times listed in a variety of English Bibles, but it's not in the original language. So if the question is this, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And what they really mean is that can a true Christian be the property of the demons or the devil? The biblical answer is no. Maybe Siri approves of that. So the answer is no. Why? Because we're united to Christ. We are Christians. We believe in Jesus. And what this means for us is that Jesus is in our hearts. How? Through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person, God of very God, lives within the born-again Christian. He indwells us. So the Spirit of God is within us. Romans 8, 9 is talking about in the context of life in the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, talking about Christians, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So the negative side is, if a person does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, does not have the Holy Spirit, does not know God. So when we say, we're all children of God, no, we're not. You haven't read your Bibles. But if you have the Spirit, and the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have true life. You have God. You have Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, and this is the context of sexual immorality and fleeing from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of what? The Holy Spirit within who? You, us, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. That price is the precious blood of our Savior. So glorify God in your body. 1 John 4, 4. This is talking in the context of testing the spirits. It says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is the he who is in you or Christians? The spirit of truth, if you keep on reading. The spirit of truth is in God's people. 
And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We have the Lord with us. Romans 5.5 5 says this about the Holy Spirit. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into where? Our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit. If you're truly born again, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. Not part-time, but full-time, permanently. God's people should say amen to that. We praise God for that. That we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God has given us himself in the Holy Spirit. So for born-again Christians, you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God owns you, not the devil and not the demons. God owns you. Isn't that encouraging? That's deeply encouraging. What if we change that question slightly? When they use the language of demon possession, obviously it doesn't mean ownership, but if they're saying, can a Christian be demon-possessed, and what they really mean is, as a Christian, I cannot choose right from wrong. Why? Because my will is absolutely dominated by a demon. Like, I know intellectually right from wrong, but my will is completely dominated by a demon, therefore, I can't obey. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. It is true, there are times in our lives when we're tempted by the devil. We're tempted by the world. And according to James chapter 1, we're tempted by our own flesh. We're tempted by the devil, the world, and the flesh. But we need to remember that Romans 6, 4 says this, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, you are now raised from the dead, and you walk in newness of life. You don't walk as a dead man anymore or a dead woman. You are alive in Christ. Romans 6, 11 says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're a born-again believer, you are alive in God because of Christ Jesus. Because of Christ Jesus. Romans 6.14 says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So for the person who says, Well, Pastor Rolla, I just can't obey God. I can't obey Him. Well, maybe you're not born again. Or maybe you are born again, but you just refuse to be a God-honoring Christian. And you're making excuses all the time of why you can't live for the Lord and obey the Lord. For sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. If you're a Christian, if you truly are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you are free 
to obey God at his word. But the opposite is true. If you're not a Christian, you're not free to obey God. You're enslaved to sin. That's John chapter 8. But if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. So if you're not born again, listen to me, non-Christian. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. You don't have the Holy Spirit of God within you. We're not part of the same family. You are enslaved to sin. You're on your way to hell. And you will be judged by God for every single sin that you've hidden from your best friend and your family and your parents. But God knows about. And what you need is salvation in Christ. You need to bend the knee by bending the heart and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. This brings up a question here. How much influence can Satan influence a believer? So if demons can't own us, if we're truly born again, can Satan and demons influence us in some manner? Well, 1 Peter 5 Verse 8 says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What is Peter saying? Peter acknowledges that, that there's a spiritual world. Peter acknowledges that there's a devil. Peter acknowledges that there's a devil coming after people. Who's he coming after? He's coming after Christians. If you understand what, what's happening here is the devil is actively and continuously hostile toward, towards God's people. He's hostile towards Christians. The Bible in 1 Peter chapter 5 doesn't describe the devil as a, little, as a little kitten who wants some milk from you and is willing to nibble on your fingertips. No, the Bible describes the devil as a lion, a roaring lion, looking for someone to completely devour and destroy. That's how the Bible describes. The devil cannot own Christians nor control them. In the New Testament, the emphasis is that the devil's influence on Christians is primarily deceptive schemes, primarily trickery. That's why the Bible describes the devil as the father of all what? lies if he can get you to believe something that's half a truth he's got you where he wants you and so whenever you're tempted to sin we need to ask ourselves does this offend the lord and if the answer is yes then don't do it don't do it so can a christian be demon possessed if this means ownership the answer is no if this means being influenced by Satan to sin against God, that means yes. But we can't blame the devil for every sin that we commit. We're being tempted by the devil, by the world, and by our own flesh. Which leads to question number two. Is God truly in control over Satan and demons? Is God truly in control over Satan and demons? Some of us believe that God is in charge of only the good stuff and that the devil's in charge of the really, really bad stuff. Do you remember I said uh, several weeks ago about the Star Wars analogy that all of us 
most of us have watched Star Wars, and it's a battle between good and evil. And we really don't know until the end of the movie who wins. We're just crossing our fingers and hoping that good prevails over evil. But we really don't know because both equal parties have equal authority and equal strength and equal weapons. That's dualism. It's a 50-50 chance. In the Bible, it's 100% that God is always the victor. Anything less is not God. It's not the God of the Bible. God is in charge. God is sovereign. But we need to be clear, too, that the Bible teaches that the devil's real, demons are real, the devil has power, but his power is limited. That should encourage you, that his power is limited. Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. The devil is also known as the god of this present evil age. Do you remember the story of Job? I hope most of us have read Job, if not all of us. But the devil comes to the Lord, and the Lord asks the devil, where have you come from? I've come from coming to and fro from all over the earth. And then there's this conversation between the Lord and Satan about testing Job. Have you ever thought about this? That it's not the devil who brings up the idea of testing Job. It's actually God. God brings up the idea to the devil about testing Job. In Job 1.8, it says this, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? This is not dualism. This is God's 100% sovereign control over the entire universe, and even in Job's life. It's not Satan that brings up the idea of testing. It's the Lord. Job is considered a true and faithful servant. But God brings up this idea of testing and suffering for Job. Job 1.12 says this, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord allows the testing. The testing is limited. The devil has limited power. So the devil tests Job in regards to his family and his personal possessions. He loses his children, by the way, if you read that story, by a storm. He loses all his personal possessions, his servants, his cattle, everything that he owned. But one thing that Satan was not allowed to do was touch the life of Job. In, in other words, take his life. Satan doesn't have that authority because God didn't give him that authority. God limits Satan. So Satan tempts Job under divine permission. Divine permission. The great reformer Martin Luther, he was quoted as saying that the devil is God's devil. In other words, the devil's on a short leash. That God is sovereign. The devil has to ask God for permission. So the devil is God's devil. God is in control. God is sovereign. Let that encourage you, dear Christian, that God is sovereign. Job 1.21 says this about Job acknowledging God's sovereignty. Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job has just acknowledged that God is sovereign. God gives, God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. The devil is called the ruler of this world, but he has limited power. The devil's actions are under God's sovereignty. And God uses even the devil's actions to perform and accomplish his good, perfect will and purposes in the world. So does that mean we should condone sin? If God is so sovereign, and God is sovereign over the devil, and the devil tempts me to sin, and I sin, well, that's part of God's plan, right? So I should just go ahead and sin. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Meganoita. May it never be. That's emphatic. May we never use God's grace as a license to sin. You're still responsible for that sin. Which leads to question number three. When we are tempted to sin or spiritually attacked, what does God require of us? There's going to be times in the Christian life where we feel spiritually attacked and we are tempted to sin against the God who created us, loved us, sent his son to live and die for us. What's going to happen? What does God require of us? There are some who believe that all Christians should be rebuking the devil all the time and the demons to rebuke them all the time to leave. Luke 9.1 Luke 9.1 Jesus is talking to the twelve and it says this and he, referring to Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Who's the he? Jesus. Jesus called the twelve who? Yes, they're disciples, but they're also apostles. Together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So when certain Christians read this verse, they're thinking, well, by extension, that applies to me. That I have authority to rebuke demons and the devil. Then we look at Luke chapter 9, or 10. That was Luke 9, by the way, Luke 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples or apostles. And now, in verse 17, they've come back. They've given a report to the, to the Lord Jesus about what they've done in ministry out there. And this is what they say in verse 17, Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The demons are subject to us in your name. So, again, there are Christians who will take this verse and by extension say, well, that applies to me automatically. You know, several years ago, I was given a, a business card by uh, a man that I met. And on his card, it said, ministries that I provide. And one of the ministries that this person provides is exorcism ministry. Right? So if you need a demon exercised out of a person, he wants you to call him and he'll take care of that for a nominal fee. <laughs> for a nominal fee. That's in the fine print. You got to read that part. Right? I actually had one of my neighbors three houses away 
call me up because he knows I'm a pastor. He said, Pastor Ola, can you come over for coffee at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning? I said, sure, I'll be there. So I show up, and he says, I have a real problem. I go, what's your problem? He said, well, I have uh, demons in my house. And I said, okay, this is a very weird coffee appointment. I said, so what would you like me to do? He said, I want you to pray and get these demons out of my house. I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pray for you. But let me ask you a question. Do you know Jesus? He said no. Actually, he said yes, but he really doesn't know. Right? Everybody, most everybody says, I know Jesus. But then when you ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? They really don't have a biblical answer. So I prayed for him. But more importantly, I prayed that God would change his heart. Because if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. He needs salvation more than he needs the so-called demons out of his house. Because if the demons were cast out of his house, he ends up in hell. Is that a good proposition? No. So, in the Middle Ages, the Reformers strongly reacted against these excess practices and the traditions of men about superstitions regarding demons. And by the 16th century, this type of action of expelling demons or exercising demons was abolished in the Lutheran church. In other words, people had taken something that was not really in the Bible, made it into something into the Bible, and then made that into a ministry. And the church said, especially the Lutheran church, they said, nope, we've had enough of that. It's not biblical. So what are we to do about verses that talk about or give the idea regarding any of this, regarding this topic? Well, I think first, first of all, we need to think in biblical terms. Remember, we need to talk when the Bible talks, and when the Bible's silent, we need to be silent. But when we read the Bible, are we thinking critically as we read through the Bible? In other words, there is a difference between what's called descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive means that the Bible is recording a historical event of something that happened, maybe a miracle, maybe another event. It's a description. This is what happened on this day, recorded. That's descriptive. But then there's also prescriptive. Prescriptive is a command, a positive or negative command that was done in biblical times and still applies today. So we need to make a difference or think in terms of there is a difference between description and prescription. One is describing an event. One is a command that applies today. So when we look at Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, we see this description. Because why? You look at verse 9. So turn with me real quick. Luke 10. 10.17 And the 72 returned with joy. Okay, So they went out preaching the gospel and doing mighty miracles. They now have come back with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. But look at verse 9. 
Back up to verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So when the 72 were sent out, they were to preach the word, but they were also to say something very specific as they were doing miracles, that the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. So the apostles heal, and they're to say the kingdom of God is near, near you. And who is Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to disciples of his. That's true. But he's also talking to more than that. He's talking to apostles. And the classic definition of apostles is ones or those who've been commissioned by Jesus Christ face-to-face or personally. They have a direct contact with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has commissioned this person to be an apostle to go do a certain mission for a period of time. They went out, and now they've come back. And so that's the classic definition of apostle. So when people say today, we have modern-day apostles, I call their bluff. Do you, do you mean capital A apostle or little a apostle? Well, we believe in capital A apostles today. I say, no, I don't believe in capital A apostles today. There are no modern-day apostles today. If you mean by lowercase a apostles that I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, I agree with that definition. But the classic definition that you saw Jesus face-to-face, that Jesus actually told you that you're an apostle of his, I got a problem with that. I got a major problem with that. So when we use the language, or the Bible uses the language, of kingdom of God has come to them, it's because they have healed the sick, they've done a miracle, they've preached the gospel, people are healed, and they hear the truth of God's word. They hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Is it so that I or you would receive all the glory? The answer, biblical answer is no. It's not about us. It's to point to Jesus Christ and to validate his work, his ministry, that God is true and faithful, that God is true and faithful to his promises. I want you to write this down, John 20 verse 30. John 20, verse 30. And it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So we're getting now to the Gospel of John. Why was the Gospel of John written? This is the answer. John 20, verse 30. Jesus had done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of signs or miracles so much so so many that they're not written in the book that's why it says which are not written in the book verse 31 but these are written so the ones that are in the gospel of john these are written why so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name The purpose of signs and miracles is to validate the truth and authenticity and the veracity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that God promised in 
ages, long time ago, that he would send a Messiah. He would send a Savior, the Redeemer of his people. And his Redeemer, the Redeemer, his Son is here in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're validating that truth with these miracles. It's not for our own glory. It's for the glory of God. To do otherwise is to rob God of his glory, and God will not be robbed of his glory. But that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life eternal. By believing in the truth of who Jesus is, you're saved from the wrath to come. So the goal of healings is to point to Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can be forgiven, by the way, of all of our sins is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at Luke chapter 10 and we look at Luke chapter 9, the apostles had powers over demons. But those powers was to point others to the truth of the gospel in Jesus. They were commissioned to do so. This is descriptive, in other words. We're not called to do capital A apostolic work. We're called to be lowercase a and be followers of Jesus Christ and honor him by obeying his word. To point others to Jesus. Pastor Ola, what do we do about James chapter 4, verse 7, and 1 Peter 5, verse 8? James chapter 4 Verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says this, which I read earlier, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But listen to this, verse 9. Verse 9, resist him. Resist him. Firm in your faith. So what does the word resist mean in these two texts? This word resist means to proactively oppose the evil one. We don't sit back passively and just see what happens. No, we proactively oppose the evil one. We oppose the devil. And in James... The context is warning against worldliness. In 1 Peter 5, the context is pastors shepherding the church as under shepherds. And who is James and who is Peter talking to? Is he talking to apostles or is he talking to the church? He's talking to the church. He's talking to the dispersed 12 tribes. He's talking about those who are being persecuted for the faith, who've been spread across the region. And trying to encourage them. So they're talking. Peter and James is talking to Christians. Not apostles per se. Even though there may be apostles in the group. The primary audience are Christians. And so there are no modern day capital A apostles. They don't exist. And so when we're tempted to sin. Or we think that we're being spiritually attacked. What does God require of us? In 1 Peter 5, verse 9, it says, resist him. Resist who? 
Resist the devil. And the answer is actually in that verse. Firm in your faith. Resist him, not in your own strength, not in your own giftings, not in your own wisdom. Resist him, firm in your faith. What faith are we talking about? The Christian faith. The biblical faith. The hope of the gospel. We're to be firm. We're to be steadfast. We're to be determined. We're to be unshakable. We're to be unmovable. We're to be fixed in the truth of God's word. That's what we're supposed to do. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God created you for his glory. God saved you. Motivated by love, he gave you his son. We were the ones that were supposed to be judged. And yet he gave us Christ. The goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus by God's grace. So this language of resisting, proactively, not passively, proactively opposing the evil one. How do we do that? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to start in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10, the Word of God says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do, no, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I preached on this series. It was a multi-week series. I'm not going to preach it again. It's recorded and posted online. But I want to remind us that the Lord has given us what we need in the battle. He has not left us destitute. He has not abandoned us. He is with us. And He's given us the right equipment. He's given us truth. His truth. He's given us righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. He's given us the gospel of peace. He's given us faith, whereas before we did not believe, because why? Spiritually dead people don't have faith. He's given us faith as a gift. He's given us salvation. He's given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the very word of God. And what else does the text say? 
prayer in the Spirit. You got every piece of armor. You have everything you need. But do God's people pray in the Spirit? It's like you're going out to war, you got a rifle in your hand, and you got no ammo inside of the rifle. What good is that? All that is is a paperweight. Just throw it and start running. But prayer in the Spirit, what else do you need? What else do you want? God has given you Himself. He's given you His Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word. He's given you Jesus as your Savior. He's given us all these things. He has not left us. He's given us everything we need. The question is, will we apply God's word in Ephesians chapter 6? Or do you need some sort of supernatural miracle to tell you to do something else, like a voice outside of the word of God, where the word of God is sufficient and it is enough? We must continue to pray. We must continue to speak the truth of God's word and preach the gospel boldly. That's what, that's what verse 19 and 20 is about. The Apostle Paul says, you put on this equipment, but don't forget to pray for me as I preach the gospel, that God would give me the right words at the right time. Do you understand when we preach the gospel out of this pulpit, there's a spiritual battle that's happening in your hearts and minds right now. It's a fight for truth. And we need men to stand up and fight for truth. We need preachers to proclaim the truth of God's word and ask God to help us. But when we think about being spiritually attacked, the greatest example of being tempted to sin and being spiritually attacked is the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that in Luke chapter 4, did we not? In the first 13 verses. Jesus is that perfect example. Jesus was the one tempted by the devil in the wilderness three times. Jesus proactively opposed the devil by using what? The Word of God. The Word of God. No person could ever put a price on the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Let me encourage you, dear Christian. Colossians 2.15 talks about Jesus' triumph over the principalities and the powers. Jesus' triumph. In Hebrews 2.14, Jesus rendered Satan powerless. In Ephesians 2.6 and Acts 26.18, we are in union with Jesus and we share in his victory and we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and been transferred into the marvelous light of Christ. Romans 8, 9, Jesus dwells in us by his spirit and we dwell in him. No one can take us from our Savior's precious hands and the Father's hands. There's one other text I want you to turn to, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. The context is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12. 
starting at verse 22. Let me read this. The Word of God says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is not only Beelzebub, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will he div- how will then how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, listen to this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So those who were the religious elite saw this blind and mute man healed. And these religious zealots were accusing Jesus of healing this man by the power of Satan. And Jesus turns the tables on them and says, well, if you're calling me Satan and I'm doing a work in Satan's name, a house against itself is divided. In other words, what you're saying makes no sense. But Jesus says, that's not the case. If I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's actually what's happening. That the kingdom of God has come upon this world. The kingdom of God has come upon this world. The kingdom of God has come upon this world. And we see the kingdom of God most clearly, most visibly, even though not perfectly, in a gospel-centered church that has a high regard for the word of God and preaches the truth of God's word. That's when we see the kingdom of God most clearly. And what we see here is a small taste, there's a small sample of what the kingdom of God will be when we're promoted in glory. Christ is the one who's defeated Satan on the cross of Calvary. We cannot put a price on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God owns his people, not the devil, not demons. God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. And as God's people, we are to use the tools that he has graciously given to us, recorded in his word. We read Ephesians 6. Sermon in a sentence. When when tempted to sin or being spiritually attacked, let us rely on the word of God. Pray and remember we belong to God through the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, that we're not left in darkness, confused, wondering what will happen. You have literally transferred us from the dominion of darkness and put us into the light of Christ by your grace. We thank you for the salvation that we have. Lord, we thank you, O God, for every blessing 
that we are forgiven of all our sins because of Christ, who is perfectly good, the goodness of Jesus. We praise your great name. There is no other king but you. We bless you. Bless this time, O God. Encourage us with your word and with your spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen.